Oh, God's good, isn't he? Yeah, I love the fact that God's good. And I love the fact that God's good no matter what we think. Which is not a prerequisite for the goodness of God. It's important for us, I think, as we come and we have the opportunity. Last week we talked about patience. This week we're going to be focused in a little bit more on prayer. So hopefully, uh, you know, that's going to answer some questions for us as we work our way through the text. But I hope we can understand that in and through it all, and all the circumstances that we face, at the end of the day, God's still good. God's still good. The, the, the struggle between my ability to recognize the goodness of God in my reality is on me. That's my struggle. God's good. I don't have all the information. I don't see all the pieces. I can't see it all clearly. Now The Bible says, now we see through a glass dimly. Yes? But one day we're going to see face to face. Now we see like we're wearing, you know, shades inside. And it's hard to, to differentiate all the different things that have occurred in our life. But one day those are going to come off. All the different things that can impede our vision. And we're going to be able to see like he sees. We're going to know like He knows. The blessing of, of getting and having the opportunity to see all that. So we're going to pick up this morning in verse 13. And it laid out for us in the beginning this concept for our prayer. How's, how's our prayer life supposed to look? How does pray, patience and prayer to go, go together? It says, is anyone among you suffering? Anybody suffering? What's the next thing it says? Let him pray. Look, the number one... Discipline most neglected in a Christian life is prayer. Let me say that again. I just want you to chew on it for a minute. The number one most neglected discipline in the Christian life is prayer. Prayer. We, we set that aside. We, we, we don't utilize it the, the way that the Scripture calls us to. And as we look at this first phrase, guys, there's so much in this word suffering. Literally, what he's saying is, is anybody who has a heartache going through any kind of difficulties, not necessarily suffering through persecution, it holds the idea of all types, any type of suffering that we might be going through. Whatever's happening in our life, let them pray. Let him pray. Let him spend time calling out upon the Lord. The opposite of this word for suffering is a word to be made cheerful. So if the opposite of suffering is to be made cheerful, then anything opposite of that, right? To be depressed, to be struggling with our circumstances. All that is wrapped up in this phrase to, uh, to let him who is suffering come before the Lord in prayer. And then one of the things, guys, here's where we struggle. We are very uh, self-centered human beings. And everything centers around me and how something affects me. And what the, what the Word is calling us to is to recognize sometimes the story is bigger than that. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the story is about me. But sometimes the story is bigger than that. And you and I don't have the eyes to see, right? We talked about we see a little dimly now. We don't see exactly how things are, how things work out. So we want, when we come in our times of suffering, depression, struggling, difficulties in life, we pray. But often, more often than not, our prayer is, Lord, take away my suffering. And maybe the prayer we ought to be praying is, Lord, give me strength for my suffering. 
Give me strength to endure. Now, why would I say that? Because contextually in this chapter, just previously as we read our way through, what is he calling us to walk in? Patience. What's he telling us to do? To endure. Like who? Like the farmer. Like the farmer who plants and has to wait for the yield. He's calling us to persevere. He's calling us to endurance. And so when we come to this section of prayer, so often what we'll do is we want to remove it from context. We want to remove it from what's going on around it. And we just want to set it out on a table somewhere and just focus on that. But we don't get to remove it from those things. We need to keep context as we work our way through Scripture. We need to realize that God wants us to bear up under our burdens with patience. And He just told us that. Look back in verse 10. If you just lift up your head in your Bible to verse 10, it says in James 5.10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who did what? Remained steadfast, persevered, endured, right? Who endured, and and then who's he going to give us an example of? You have heard of the steadfastness of Job? God took away all his problems? Or God gave him strength to endure? So the idea, we want to, we don't want to remove ourselves from context as we work our way through scripture. What am I, what I'm saying is if you're suffering, cry out to God to give you strength. You want to pray that God takes it away? Pray that God takes it away. But don't ignore the opportunity to get strength for the journey. Because your journey may include a little bit of suffering. How many of us know that our journey in life may include a little bit of suffering? It's alright if you don't know, God will make even this clear to you. Yeah, life has suffering. Life has lows and highs. Agreed? It's not all low. It's not all high. Just like we sang that song a moment ago. Sometimes life has storms, right? And the, and the, storm, the key to the storm is knowing that at any time, God can say what? Peace be still. Peace, that's all it takes, is a word from Him. So we trust in Him, we lean to Him, and we look to Him. If anyone is suffering, let him pray. But what's the next thing Scripture says? Is anyone cheerful? <clears throat> let him sing praise. Look, here's the thing. Is sometimes it's easier for us to remember God when we're low than when we're high. But that's only half of the equation. If I only call out upon the name of the Lord when I'm low, and I forget Him when I'm high, I'm only halfway there. You guys get what I'm saying? I need to remember, I need to learn to praise God when I'm happy. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now we think it's our job to knock them down a notch. We should probably get out of that idea. It's not, you know, God's really been dealing with me probably in the last, I don't know how long we've been in James, a year, five chapters. It's been a while. But God's been been really working on me and speaking to me about pride and how many times pride is my issue. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Why is it that you guys are banging your heads? Bottom line, pride. Because we don't want to walk like our humble king. We don't want to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord because if we humble ourselves, who's going to fight for me? So instead, we, we let our pride rise up and, we, and, and that's where it's coming from. That's what the scripture delivers to us. It's what it's telling us. But here what the Word is telling me, look, I, I, I need to learn to walk in humility. If somebody gets something new and they're happy about it, sing praises alongside them. 
Praise God they got a new car or a new house or a new bike or God blessed them in some way. Praise God with them. Learn in the highs to praise God. Learn in the lows to call upon His name. Now you're getting the whole picture. See, our life is not all one or the other, is it? But it's a mixture of both. So what's he saying? If anyone among you suffers, let him pray. If you're cheerful, let him sing praise. What if you're sick? If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Look, uh, there is a something for everybody as we work our way through this section in James. Now, one of the things I want to remind us as we consider being, being joyful and rejoicing. You guys remember Paul and Silas being in a dark place and deciding to sing praises and something good happened? Right? They were in prison, right, in, uh, in uh, uh, Philippi. In Acts 16.25, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What's the result of that? A lot of guys get saved. How do they get saved? By watching how, through a time of suffering, Paul and Silas were able to rejoice in the Lord anyway. There's something in that, in that last uh, song we sang, you know, where, where it's talking about, let me not be afraid, the waves are just waves. It's just waves. It's just stuff and it's not the end. No matter what the things are, we can find our ability to rejoice. We can find our ability to cry out to the Lord. But then what if I'm sick? What if I find myself (coughs) struggling with illness? The word says, literally the word for sick, guys, you need to hold on to this, is not just I got a cold, I got the flu, I got cancer, I'm about to die. The word for sick, sick is to be without strength. You ever felt like you're without strength? That's the word. Okay, that's the word. The word that there is without strength. It can mean illness. I'm without strength because physically I'm sick and I'm, I'm weak and I can't get out of bed. Or it can be a variety of other things that may be more spiritually in tuned. All of that is included in this word. We need to <clears throat> understand it's just being without strength. So he says, let him... The one who is sick, call for the elders of the church. Now, is there something special about the elders of the church? I don't know. I don't know. All I know is this, that when when there was a struggle getting things done in the early church, the the scripture, uh, the disciples came together and they said, look, choose for you six men full of the Holy Spirit. And let them do the work about making sure that the widows have the things that they need. And, and we've kind of based what we do off of that. The elders are chosen as men full of the Holy Spirit, who are willing to go to prayer first, who will only move forward if we all agree. If we don't all agree, nothing happens. There's never been a vote in the history of Calvary Chapel Buell for the last nine years that was, you know, three to two. That doesn't happen. All in, or we're out. Period. Nobody has a veto. Nobody has some over, overarching thing. So the, the concept, I think, is that those who have been raised up within the church for that specific role to be men uh, ministering through the body of the church, if someone's sick, if someone's weak, if someone's struggling, then we should lay down our pride and call for the elders. Not just one. 
There's a group, right? doesn't give us a number, but it's plural. <laughs> There's more than one. I really appreciate Don, my brother. He shared with me a long time ago, going out and praying for people who were sick, and, and God began to do some miracles, and, and the sick were healed. And, and I think the Holy Spirit spoke to him and gave him some wisdom. That wisdom was start gathering together a body of people. So your head don't start thinking it's you. Right? And now you got five of you laying around, you're laying hands on somebody, praying for them, they get healed. That's the power of God. Working through, that's the point. That's the purpose behind there being a group. Call for the elders of the church. But we have to be humble enough to do that. Wives, you have to be humble enough to tell your husband you're upset about something. Husbands, you got to be humble enough to tell your wives you're frustrated. But we go through our lives thinking that osmosis works. Right? Surely everyone knows what's going on in my life. No. (laughs) Not even if you put it all on Facebook do I know what's going on in your life. (laughs) So if, if... that you're going through something, if you're struggling spiritually, if those things are happening in your life, you're physically sick, you have cancer, something's going on in your life, the Bible says call for the elders. And it's a private deal. The elders come to you. They can sit down in your living room, sit down and pray with you and encourage you. And that's exactly what this scripture is talking about. That's how the body is supposed to function. The next thing it says is when you call for them, what are they going to do? They're going to anoint you with oil. Now, there's a lot of words they could have used for the word anointing. Most of the time, we look at the anointing of oil as symbolic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the word they use here. The word they use here is the word for a medicinal purpose. So, it it means that there's a possibility that there's more going on here than just the idea of going through this symbolism of anointing someone with oil, praying that God would bring His healing. Maybe there's actually some ministering happening. You guys know what that means? Minister is not what something a pastor does is holy. Minister is to serve. Maybe some of the service is coming and, and just being able to help in some way the sick. Maybe it's just laying hand. Maybe it's uh, rubbing shoulders. I don't know. Maybe it's applying medicine. Maybe it is symbolically anointing and praying for the Holy Spirit. It's all encompassed in the phrase. But we want to take it and chop it up and make it something else that, that Scripture's not talking about. What Scripture is talking about is the elders going to the sick who have called and said, Hey, I'm struggling. Or the person who's depressed or the person who's weak. And they go to them and they minister to them. I don't know what that looks like all the time. Sometimes maybe it's chocolate chip cookies. You guys get what I'm saying? That's ministering. Sometimes it's knowing to pour oil over someone's head and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to move in their life. Sometimes on the way to the house call, you're not going to have words. Sometimes on the way to the house, you're not going to know what to say or what to do because there's no sentence to make this all go away. So what is it that a praying group of men ought to be doing? Relying on the power of God to equip. Because God doesn't call the equipped. What does he do? He equips the called. First he calls you, then he gives you what you need. First he tells you, open your mouth, then he gives you words. You guys tracking with me? So we need to recognize that this is the work that God wants to do in our life. So the elders come, anoint them with oil. 
And then <coughs> we recognize all of this stuff is happening, then the prayer is given. Now look at the prayer. I want you guys to see this. <clears throat> and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now there's a lot of things in there that kind of jump out to me. I don't know if they jump out to you. They jump out to me. They jump out to me. For instance, the Lord will save the one who is sick is a word specifically used, sozo, for salvation. That, that there's more going on here than a physical healing. I'm not saying a physical healing isn't happening, because it is. But there's more. There's more to all of it than just what is surrounding our little bubble. Did my difficult circumstances go away? I don't know if they did or not. But the Lord says here, He's going to save the one who is sick. And then He uses the phrase, and I'm going to raise him up. And that phrase can be used to say, I'm going to raise him up off his sick bed, or I'm going to raise him up on the last day. It can have an eschatological meaning, a meaning yet future, or a meaning right there. And I think he does this on purpose. Why? Because sometimes it's one or the other or both. Everybody tracking with me? Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other, sometimes it's both at the same time. And I think this is what he's laying out for us so that we can <coughs> understand. But the terms he uses here are salvific terms. Terms that deal with our eternal state. So there's both of these things are, are being called into question. Now look where he goes in verse 16, because you might say, well, it's a little bit strange, but at the end of verse 15, what did he say? If he has committed sins, what will happen? They'll be forgiven. Wow. Now, that doesn't make as much sense if we're dealing with uh, healing from sickness. makes a lot of sense if we're dealing with salvation, though, doesn't it? Interesting. Interesting. So as we look at it, then he moves on to that idea. What's he say in verse 16? Therefore, confess your sins. What's the next word? To one another. Oh, whoa, wait a minute. I don't, we don't believe in confession around here. I'm just going to confess my own stuff. You know, there's something that James has been pushing us through these five chapters, and that is to let go of our pride. And it requires the letting go of our pride and a stance of humility to, st to say to somebody, hey, I'm struggling in this sin, will you pray for me? That's, that requires humility. He says, therefore, in light of all this stuff we're talking about, about prayer, we're going to come back to it in a minute, but all this stuff about prayer that we've been talking about, confess your sins to one another. Hey, while we're, while we're on this subject, he says, man, you need to confess your sins to one another. And then what's the next thing he says? Not only that, <clears throat> and pray for one another. So what is my response supposed to be? Annoyed? Oh, man, I don't have to deal with this right now. No, what's, my, what's the response of love? He says you're going to love one another. That's how they're going to know you're my disciples, by the way you guys love each other. So what that means is I'm going to start to lay down my pride. I'm going to get away from my pride so we stop having wars. I'm going to start walking in humility. And I'm going to recognize, I don't know if you guys know this, but I have moral failures in my life. I, some of you look shocked. 
Some of you who have ridden with me go, yeah, that's not a problem, Jackie. I know that for sure you got moral failures. I got moral failures. What does God want me to do as I continue to grow? Pretend I don't? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that what it means to be a mature believer? Pretend I don't have any issues. Or being mature means, you know, I find someone that I can have who's willing to hold me accountable with things and I can confess my stuff with them and they'll pray with me. Isn't that not how this is supposed to work? Yeah, it is, right? It is. It is. But you know, we go back to the idea of confession. That requires something of me. That requires my willingness to say, I am responsible for what I do. A lot of people struggle with that idea. Do you struggle with being able to be responsible for your choices? You can't, you're not responsible for nobody else's, but whose are you responsible for? I can't, I'm not responsible for what choices anybody else makes through my day, but I, me, am responsible for mine. How I respond to those choices, it can never be, I I can't even tell you how many years my wife and I argued over this, it can never be, you made me mad. That is unwillingness to be responsible. I let myself get mad. That's how it happened. You did something that made me angry and I chose to feed it. Be responsible. That's what confession is about. You know what? I confessed earlier this week, probably a few times. I, I still sometimes struggle with rage. I don't know if anybody can relate. If the cork comes out of the bottle, I honestly don't know how to get the cork back in. It's like I'm blowing up everywhere. I'm, it's a mess. It's all bad. Nothing good about it. Okay? That's just reality. And so I was confessing with some brothers, you know, to I still need prayer for that stuff. That don't happen like it used to, but so what? I'm still there. If Joe pushes the right buttons at the wrong time, that cork comes out of the bottle. Most of the time I'm in the... Quiet, solid, well it's not quiet. I'm in the solitude of Joe's room. The only people that might be able to hear is Rusty and Amanda because they live across the street. <laughs> and I, I recognize within the first minute or so, I am, I've totally lost it and, I, and I'm, I'm, I am trying to grab some semblance of self-control again. That's just real. Right? And I'm not saying, Joe, you made me mad. No. I say, Joe, Dad lost it. I'm sorry. When I'm able to get the cork back in. Now, God doesn't want me to walk around and just make excuses for that. He says, confess your sin to one another and pray for each other. What's the next phrase? So that you may be healed. We haven't left the subject of healing. And this word for healed is physical healing. You want to experience physical healing, what's he saying? Maybe some of the things that's holding us back is a lack of willingness to be repentful, a lack of willingness to confess, a lack of our willingness to lay down our pride and pray for one another. Maybe that's part of the problem behind the lack of power you see in the church today. I can tell you this, whatever it is, it ain't out there that's the problem. It's in here. And so James is saying, man, guys, if this is going on in your life, we want to be able to confess our sins to one another. We want to pray for one another so that you may be healed. What's the next phrase? 
<coughs> this is probably how you hear it in your Bibles. The, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Right? That's how we're familiar with it. There's a reason why I went to the ESV. It helps me a little bit because it will say, yeah, the word fervent's not there. It's added by the translators to help us get the idea that this is effective prayer. And in a moment, we're going to see the fervency of Elijah, so I'm not saying it's without its place. But when we look at it, what the Scripture is laying out for us here is that the prayer of a righteous person, a righteous person. Now, there's a lot of things that make us righteous, right? Jesus Christ makes me righteous. I'm not any more righteous now than I'm going to be righteous any other time because Jesus Christ makes me righteous. But... There is the reality that I'm growing in Christ and hopefully I'm getting a little better so that I don't have to rely as much on the, on, on Jesus covering, but I'm becoming more and more like Jesus from the inside. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to say I am in some way becoming righteous, but because I'm living a life of repentance and confession and prayer, then it says immediately in that context, that righteous person's prayers Yeah, a lot of good comes from that. You catching it? You catching it that it's, it's gotta be, our relationship with Christ and our, the power of our prayer life, guys, has to spring out of a reality that I live in a reality trusting Jesus Christ, not perfect, but living a life of repentance and confession and prayer. That's what it's about. We don't get to take that discipline of our life, chop it out, throw it away, and say, well, this is how I make up the discipline of being a Christian. I go to church. Well, hallelujah. I don't think that's it. I think in the context of what we're looking at, guys, this is what he's talking about. Hey, (coughs) we want to recognize the prayers of a righteous person. It works. It works because that person is in a right relationship with God. Not perfect. Not perfect. Just not hiding. You guys get the difference? You guys know what I mean? By not perfect but not hiding? Not pretending? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He pointed out the Pharisees. He said, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Now what does that mean? It's a gravestone full of dead men, right? It's not very clean. But if you paint it all pretty on the outside, we just pretend we're clean. Is that what we're supposed to do? Or is this what I'm supposed to do? I'm, 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 if, if I'm not supposed to pretend I'm clean, I'm just supposed to pretend that it, none of it matters. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Just pretend that sin don't matter and we can do whatever we want? No, what, what is it that Jesus is looking for? I just want the real. You are a sinner, so confess, repent, and pray. I am a sinner. Confess, repent, and pray. That's the journey. That's the reality. We want to have effective prayer life. That needs to be a part of our effective prayer life. That we are for real. Proverbs 28.13 says this. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. See, sometimes that's where we hide. The Bible says if I regard iniquity in my heart, then I can't go on with God. If I'm holding on to some sin that I got in some secret corner of my life and I'm not willing to confess it, I'm not willing to pray over it, I'm not willing to repent of it, then I get stuck. And I'm stuck in a spot and I'm complaining about everything else about why I'm not out of that spot. But perhaps part of the issue is I need to realize I'm concealing transgression. 
I'm pretending to be a whitewashed tomb. And none of us are that clean. None of us. And we don't all struggle with the same sin nor the same type of sin, but we all struggle. So it's what helps me to be empathetic to someone who comes in off the street who has made a lot of mistakes in her life. Instead of seeing them as, oh my gosh, it's just another person who's strung out on meth or <clears throat> just another person that's done this or made bad decisions or whatever. I can be empathetic for them if I can recognize there but by the grace of God go I. I'm not that far. I'm, I'm, I'm a couple of bad decisions somewhere in my life of being that dude. Can we have empathy for one another? Can we minister to one another like James is calling us to? Then he moves on to the proof that this prayer works. Who's he give us as an example? Elijah, right? Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. <clears throat> What's his point? Did Elijah ever need to confess sin? Yep. Did Elijah ever need to repent? Yep. Did Elijah ever need to confess to a brother and ask him to pray for him and give him strength? Yep, that's why he's using this as an example, guys. This is the example. Elijah was not some guy with a halo around his head who floated everywhere he went because he was so holy. He's, he has the same nature we have. The same nature. But did he have a powerful prayer life? Yeah. Yes, he did. And so can you. So can you. It's, that's, the, that's the point he's making. He has a nature like ours. He prayed, here's the word, fervently, passionately. He was passionately seeking God that it might not rain for three years and six months. <clears throat> and it did not rain on the earth. And he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now here's what I want you to understand from this story. This doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Elijah wakes up one day and decides, you know, I'm going to pray it doesn't rain. God told him. Elijah, pray it doesn't rain. God told him, Elijah, pray that it rains. What was Elijah doing? He's responding to what God told him to do. He was being obedient to what God said. God said, do this, and he did it. God said, move, and he moved. God said, this is how I want you to be. This is how he wanted to be. So he had the same limited human nature as we have, but he was willing to respond to the commands of God, <coughs> the direction that the Lord gave him, and remarkable things happened in his life. Are, are we willing to do that? We have this tendency to want to take shortcuts where we shouldn't take shortcuts. You guys ever done that? Yeah, no? No, but just me? Right, somebody tell me a shortcut at getting wood. Lord have mercy. So I go get wood. Sooner or later this is going to come out. So... I go, for the last two weeks, I've, I've gone to get wood. My goal was to get three cords for winter. I don't need it. I just like it. Okay? Everybody with me? So, and I'm totally cheap and unwilling to pray, to pay. Now, not pray, pay. I'm, I'm totally unwilling to pay the price for a cord the way it started. So I thought cord prices started high. After going and working on getting wood for the last two weeks... I'm not entirely sure I'm very accurate in my thought process. But, nonetheless, we go up to get wood. And the first time, it's funny, I have this plan to go somewhere. And I talk to somebody who I will leave unnamed so he doesn't get embarrassed. <coughs> and he said, oh no, Jackie, don't go there. This is where you want to go. 
So I went there. And I worked from forever (laughs) to find like six trees that are dead enough in a place where I can cut them down. And so we all day long slave, all day long hunting and pecking to try to find these trees. And they're they're not a shortcut. I keep hoping I'm going to drive around the corner. They'll be already cut and stacked. (laughs) And I can just put them on a trailer. How many of you guys know that doesn't happen? Well, and if it does, not very often. So instead, the tree is usually 65 yards away from where you got to park. And of course, there's a big aspen grove between you and the vehicle that gives you about an 8-inch wide room to carry a, you know, 14-inch around log through. Yeah, it's, it's fun. A lot of fun. No shortcuts. No shortcuts. So we come back and I say, man, dude, I think I should have went to the other place. Because in my brain, the other place, it's already cut and stacked. All I got to do is pick it up there. <clears throat> he said, man, you went to the wrong place. I said, I did, yeah. So he gave me new directions. So he gives me new directions. and The new directions worked. I parked one place and we were able to cut down all the trees we needed. But the funny part, you guys want to know the funny part? He says, call me, I'll help. I called him all day that day, and he did not answer that phone one time. (laughs) Oh, I have to say something. But anyways, the point of all that was not to roast my brother. The point of all that is to say, there's no shortcut, right? It's a life of confession, repentance. That's how it looks. Right? It's how it is. That's what we want to do. That's how we want to live our lives out. So that we can see the power that we want to see work in our life. Just like Elijah. Now he goes on to give us another point, guys, in verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And you might say, well, why? That seems different than everything else. No, this is a part of the same paracope. We're still talking about healing, confession, repentance, getting lives right, seeing the power of God work and function in the life of a believer. So what is he telling us? He's saying, hey man, if you see a brother who's off track, and we've been going through studying the book of Proverbs on Wednesday. And Proverbs, the book of Proverbs tells us, in essence, there's two roads of life. One is the road of life, one is the road of death. Right? Multiple times in my life I have switched from one road to the other because Proverbs tells me there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. Sometimes I'm not being led by the Spirit or following the Word of God and I find myself on the wrong road. Anybody ever get on the wrong road before in life? Well, Proverbs says that's the road of death. That's where that road goes. So we want to recognize, you see a brother get on that road, (coughs) what is it that you're supposed to do? You see a brother get on the road of death, wandering from the truth, go bring him back. Now, how many of you know that's not a comfortable conversation? Usually, the next thing I get thrown at me is, why are you judging me? Lord, have mercy on my soul. I don't know, brother, because I love you, mostly. So if I didn't, I'd just say, go perish down that road, I don't care. But instead it says, look, if you see a brother on the wrong road, you want to bring him back. Now how are we going to bring him back? 
Well, it's the same thing that we go back to. The righteous man, right? The prayers of the righteous man availing much. The fervent prayers of Elijah. It's not something I'm going to work out or do or be able to function in my hands. I'm going to have face-to-face confrontation or communication with that person. But what's going to do the work is the power of the Holy Spirit because I'm willing to do what God's Word says. And that is live a life of confession, repentance, and prayer. We pray for Him. We pray they turn around. We pray that they repent. We pray that they get off the road. We pray that they change. You know that the scripture declares to us this, guys. In Ezekiel 33.11, God's word says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You hear that? Because I don't think we really believe it. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God says, I am not excited about having to bring judgment, pour out fire, watch people be destroyed. You read the Old Testament. Does it happen there? Sure it does. And what does God say? I don't like to do it. That's the same thing I said before my kids every time they got a whooping. I don't like to do it. That's the same thing I say every time I have to have a a face-to-face with a brother who's maybe on the wrong road. I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to do this. I want to do something fun and happy. Sometimes you don't get to do that in life. Sometimes it means you have to have difficult conversations. Sometimes I'm wrong. And somebody's coming to me saying, Jackie, what did you do? Man, I'm sorry that wasn't my heart. I want to be fast to confess and repent. I want to be like David. Ah, guilty, pray, change. But the Lord says, look, I don't have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but for what? That the wicked would turn from his way and live. So this is what God did. He said, Ezekiel, I don't want to destroy him, so I want you to go, and I want you to be my voice to him. Jeremiah, I don't want to destroy him, so Jeremiah, I want you to go to him and be my voice to him. (laughs) Nahum, I don't want to destroy him, so I want you to go to him and be my voice to him. Scripture says, all day long the Lord sent forth his prophets. Calling people to repentance. But do we know that not everyone chooses to change the road they're on? So if, if as a nation, the Canaanites are on the road to destruction, and God says, I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live, and for 400 years they had opportunity to repent, and never changed, and then finally judgment comes, and everybody points their finger at God and says, why is God so mean? God's not mean, he's just. There's a big difference. And his justice, it's perfect. So listen, I want you to hear his heart. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Why die? You're on the wrong road. If you see a brother on the wrong road, In prayer, through confession, we want to see him turn. How did he get on the wrong road? (coughs) Excuse me, Proverbs 14.12 says, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So he got on a road that leads to death. What is this verse telling us? If anyone wanders from a true and someone brings him back, let him know. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Isn't that the same thing Ezekiel was saying? God saying, I don't have no, 
I don't, I don't have no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that's the road you're on. That's where the destination goes. Why are you mad at me? Because you're on that road. Get off the road. I'm trying to tell you, get off the road. Change your direction. Get off the road. Repent. Turn. Stop. This is what God is calling us to, to experience for one another. And the one who does this, the man, the woman who's willing to reach out to a brother or sister, will save his soul from death and does what? Cover a multitude of sins. Now that should immediately jump out at you. Why? What covers a multitude of sins? Love covers a multitude of sins. So what is this act? Loving. Right? Loving. Well, it seems a little tense, don't it? Well, just take it from me. I promise. It's tense. Yeah? That's what happens when you're... the. The, the placard on your door says the buck stops here. You get lots of conversations like this one. That's how it works. But the scripture says that's loving to, to reach out to a brother. It's loving to want to see him <coughs> or her get on the path that they want to get on. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 5, guys, I, I just really want you to grasp this. We'll go quick for the last seven minutes. We want to see... Most often, what we want to see in Ephesians—I'm sorry—in James chapter five, we want to see the power of God moving in prayer. We want to see the sick healed, the dead raised, the 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 blind to see, the deaf to hear. We want to see the power of God moving and working in in our lives. Okay, we want to see that being expressed. And oftentimes, it brings about the question about, well, what is prayer for anyway? And what's that all about? And why is he calling us to this life of this discipline of prayer? <clears throat> so there's a few assumptions I want to just talk about briefly and then some reasons to pray I'm going to get to, okay? So just track with me seven minutes, hopefully I get it all in. First assumption, <clears throat> we assume that God's goodness requires God to heal everyone. Because God is loving and God is good and it's bad to be sick. Or it's bad to die, so a loving God should do all of those things. But listen, the scripture lays out for us, guys, that we are subject to physical death until the return of Christ. We are subject to physical death. That's part of our reality. In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. All, we all have this hanging over us. Death. That's why Jesus calls it the last enemy. The death of death. That's what Jesus Christ is working in us and for us. So when we see this, we understand <coughs> God is all loving. And God is all, power, all powerful. But we need to understand what is best for us is not always healing. Sometimes that's hard to hear. What is best for us, me personally, is not always healing. This is what God's promise is to you. I promise I'll do what's for your good and my glory. That's what he said, Romans 8.28. I promise to do what's for your good 
and my glory. So we're called over and over again to pray in faith. What is that faith? Is it faith in faith? Is it just faith for faith's sake? If I believe hard enough, then it'll all come true? That's not what the Bible says. It's faith. It's always, every time it says the prayer of faith, it's the prayer of what you don't see because it doesn't make sense in English is the definite article. You're praying according to the faith. The faith. What's the faith? Our faith and trust in God Almighty. Our faith that God is good. Our faith that God is moving and working. Our faith that God will only bring into my life those things that are necessary. That God doesn't waste my hurt. That God doesn't waste my tears. That God's not a puppet master in the sky playing with my life. But those are the things that we struggle with. It says, I'm going to have faith. I'm going to have faith and trust that God knows what He's doing in my life. It's not always for my best. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. Paul says, so to keep me from being <clears throat> becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, <clears throat> a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, My grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly on my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sometimes it's not always best that the healing comes. Sometimes the healing is spiritual, and it absolutely does come. Sometimes the healing is physical, and it does come. But who's the healer? God is. Who gets to decide? God does. What does He tell me to do? Prayer. He says, pray. Pray how? In faith, trusting God, that I trust God. He knows what He's doing. Not faith in faith. Not faith that just says, I believe enough. If that work, <clears throat> Cindy Hegerman would still be alive. If that worked, I'd still be in California and Brent Heather would still be here preaching the gospel. Because both of them were prayed for by people who believe and believe with everything within them. But sometimes God's plans are different than ours, aren't they? And God's always right. Not always easy. But it's always right. It's always right. We put our faith in God. The faith the size of a mustard seed. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say that mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. But it's not faith in faith. It's not just believing for the sake of believing in something, some power out there that I can command. It's faith in the holy God that knows what He's doing in my life. And if I have faith that says, God is holy and He knows what He's doing in my life, then you can't stop me. That's what it means to say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Now when Paul was going forward in his ministry, you know what you could say about him? You can't stop him. Beat him with a pipe, he keeps coming. Stone him, he keeps coming. Get sick, he keeps coming. Get shipwrecked, he keeps coming. Why? Because nothing would stop him. Why? Because he had faith of a mustard seed in who? The God of the universe. 
That God knows what He's doing and what He's accomplishing, and there's a purpose and a point for it. The other thing we sometimes struggle in is we look at the Scripture and we say, look at all these miracles that we used to see. How come we don't see them now? Well, there's something different about then than there is about now. That's why. There are four periods of time in the Bible that you see more miracles than any other time. Those four periods is the Exodus, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus, and the Apostles. Those four make up the majority. I'm not saying all. There's always miracles going on all the time. Don't go crazy. I'm saying the majority period of time when more miracles happen than any other time. How many of us go to the book of Acts and we're reading the Acts of the Apostles as the Apostles are going forward and establishing a church and we say, man, there's the church and we should see those same miracles today as we saw then. Maybe, maybe not. When Jesus said to his disciples, these things you've seen me do and more you will be able to do, we automatically assume those words mean the same thing to us that they meant to the twelve. You sure that's right? Are you sure he wasn't calling the twelve to something special? Are there still miracles today? Well, look, I can't argue against miracles, can I? They diagnosed me with HIV. I don't have HIV anymore. Uh, what do you call that? Well, that's usually, I don't know too many guys have been healed of that. I don't think that list is very long. Does God heal? Yes. Do I believe in the gifts? Yes. All that stuff's still true. But I just want us to acknowledge, sometimes we're comparing not apples and apples. Between the establishing of the church and the building of the church and where the church is now looking for the return of her Savior. Maybe. Something to consider anyways. Third thing. God has to say yes if I pray in faith. What? Oh yeah, if I pray in faith, God has to say yes. No. That would make you God. Everybody get that? If God has to do what you say, that that makes you God. God is sovereign. God chooses. God still moves. The scriptures that talk about Jesus saying, I'll do everything that you ask according to my name, means that it's going to be consummate with his will, right? That's what it means to be according to my name. It doesn't mean at the end of our prayer we say in the name of Jesus, which we all do because it's our tradition, okay? But what it means to pray in the name of Jesus means I'm praying according to his will. That's what it means. Pray according to his will. Whatever you pray according to my will, you have it. That's absolutely true still today. Whatever you pray according to God's will, you will absolutely have. Finally, the fourth assumption we make sometimes about prayer and healing is the idea that God's future healing is not equal to our earthly suffering. Sometimes we think heaven is, you know, second place. Being in the presence of God is somehow less worthy than being physically healed. Here's what Paul said in Romans 8.18. Paul declared this, Our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's not worthy to be revealed. Man, that is honestly the best healing. No more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. It's hard for us, okay? I get it. It's hard for us. But it's good for them. It's good for them, and it's not, it doesn't play second fiddle. 
So sometimes we look at these things and we talk about these things, and this is the next question I get. Well, then what do we pray for? If I pray and it's not going to do all these things that I want it to do, if prayer is not self-serving, if prayer does not give me, you know, all my wish list, then why am I praying? So I spent a few minutes and I put together a list of why you are praying. Okay? So this is a discipline in the life of a believer we need to get back to. This is something that we need to see in our lives again. <clears throat> so here we go. Number one, not in any particular order, so don't think this is the most important. Number one, prayer is serving God. To be a man or woman of prayer is to serve God. Luke 2, 36 to 38. There was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow <coughs> until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. She served God. How? Worshiping, fasting, and prayer. Was her service to God. Prayers commanded by God. Philippians 4, 6-7 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds until the day of Christ Jesus. We want that peace? God says, pray. Pray. Then say you get your wish list. He said, pray. And you'll get peace. Pray. It's a command. Next thing, next reason to pray. Because Jesus did it. If Jesus did it, and he's the Son of God, don't we need to do it? Mark one thirty-five. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Scripture tells us to pray when we have a major decision to make. Luke 6, 12-13, again referencing Christ. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, <clears throat> and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. The choosing of the twelve. What did Jesus do? Prayed all night long before he made that decision. We're also to pray to overcome demonic barriers. We all remember the story in Matthew seventeen fourteen to 21 the young man that couldn't be healed by Jesus' disciples, he brings him to Jesus. Jesus is able to heal him. The disciples say, Lord, why couldn't we heal him? He had a, a demonic spirit within him. He was thrown into the fires at time. You remember what Jesus said to them? First he said, you need to have faith. Faith in who? Not in yourself, not in your own abilities, not in your own faith. Faith in God. But he also said, listen... You, I say to you, if you have faith of a mustard seed, you can say this mountain be removed from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible. However, this kind does not go out except prayer and fasting. Prayer calls us to pray. What about for workers of the spiritual harvest? We're supposed to pray for that, aren't we? Luke ten two. He said to them, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore." Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the field, into the harvest. We're supposed to pray for strength over temptation. Right? Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray 
that you may not enter into temptation, for indeed the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're to pray to strengthen each other. We're to pray for one another to strengthen each other spiritually. Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Man, praying for one another. And then, hear this. When everything is said and done, no matter what you do, no matter if you think I'm full of nonsense and Jackie has no idea what he's talking about, just pray. Why? Because your prayers are never in vain. Your prayer is never useless. Your prayer is never empty. Your prayer, just like your tears, just like your suffering, always has a purpose that is being accomplished. The scripture tells us this in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for like we ought to. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What does that mean? I mean, God uses our obedience that we prayed, and He uses the Holy Spirit to come alongside our prayer, and He groans through our prayer to bring about God's purpose in our life. Our prayer still accomplished something. God fixes it. Just pray, He says. Just pray. If my people would pray, Jesus said, they would not lose heart. If my people would pray, they would experience the victories that they won in their life. Verse 27 says, He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Guys, a lack of prayer demonstrates a lack of faith in the God who is. And I want us to see the Spirit move in power in our midst. I want to see people healed and touched and raised up. I want to see God do things beyond all we can ask or imagine. But if we want to see God do all those things, then we need to be, we need to be following the, the discipline of, of a believer. We need to live a life of confession and repentance. Stop pretending we're holy. We're holy in Christ Jesus. Praise God. But be willing to have empathy for one another. Encourage one another while it is today. Build one another up while it is today. But have an attitude of humility and watch God move in mighty ways. Guys, this is what the book of James has been all about. Leading us to the climax. It began with suffering and ended with suffering. What's the climax? You can find victory through it all. Peace in it all. Everything that you need in prayer. Pray. What did he say in chapter 4? You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on yourself. Get away from the self-centeredness of prayer and move into all that God has for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand before the Lord? Let's pray together. Heavenly
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to to open the word. And and, uh, God, I just pray, Lord, that if nothing else, we're challenged. Lord, I do ask, God, that you would uh, protect ears, God, from from too much of me. Lord, I pray that uh, your word shines forth. Your word is what we hold to, not my opinion. Your word, what your word says, what your word teaches, what your word calls us, a final arbiter in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would, in humility, submit ourselves to what your word teaches that we would see you move in our lives in power, majesty. I pray that the church would become such a beautiful picture of the real bride, the true bride of Christ, the bride who has washed herself and prepared herself for that great wedding day. I pray, Lord, that we would walk in obedience to the things that your word calls us to, that we recognize sometimes the things that you call us to is not all about us. And I pray, God, that through it all, you would bring your healing to our hearts, your strength to our, to our lives, that we might walk the path that you've laid out for us. Because everyone's walk of life, though it ends in life, is not always easy. So give us strength for the journey. Give us eyes that are bound to your word so that we know where to walk. Give us feet that are bound to your word so that we are walking where you're telling us to walk. Give us hands bound to your word so that we're doing the things that your word calls us to do. And in all we say or do, God, I pray that it would be to elevate and lift you up as our God and King. We give you praise and glory for this morning and ask your blessing as we go from this place in Jesus' name. Amen.